Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Today we're talking with Simeon England. Simeon is a traditional American craftsman uh, operating out of Kentucky. He specializes in the mid to late 18th century and the accoutrements around that area. And, and primarily, I guess, the, the accoutrements used on the East Coast and into the settlement of Kentucky, uh, which is the kind of thing we're going to be talking about through this episode. Some of Simeon's journey in muzzleloading, like we do with many of our guests here, and, and then where he's at now and what he's making now, and the research that goes into the documented recreations that he's making. We're also going to talk a little bit about living history, living historians and their personas, as well as some of the contemporary living history events. Once again, here's Simeon England. What got you into muzzleloading? I answer that with people by saying I don't really understand a time where I wasn't. So at somewhere around five or six years old, my I found my grandpa's draw knife in the basement. Oh. In my, da- in my dad's workshop. And I asked him, because grandpa was born in 1898, and he died in 81. And so I wasn't six years old yet. And uh, I asked my dad what that was for. You know, what is this? It was something new. I hadn't seen it before. And he he showed me, uh, you know, what it was for and how it was used. And he said this was his his dad's tools, my grandpa's. And my grandpa was born and raised, as was my dad, in Middle Tennessee, in the mountains. And I love, I still do, I love going to Tennessee, Sparta, Tennessee. And uh, to to visit that place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so dad put a two by six up in the vice on the workbench. And I started to whittle in the soup out of that thing. (laughs) And what was I making? I was making shavings. Yeah. But the, the only thing that I can think of now is that I was connecting with grandpa's tool. I mean, you can see, you can feel the thumbprints in the hands. Yeah. Of that thing. And so at an early age, I was connecting with my grandpa's tool with something that he used and using it. And so that's always been in me to have that connection with with people that have come before me and how special it was to be able to do that uh, within my own family line. And so somewhere around the age of of, uh, 13 years old, I grew up in a in an organization called Royal Rangers, and it does uh, camping, scouting, things like that. And it's it was affiliated inside my church, and uh, that's what got me into the rendezvous scene, shooting cap locks and and things like that. And about about what year would that have been? Nineteen eighty eight. Nineteen eighty eight. Okay, I always like to try to get a a frame of reference there, especially for for folks at home. You know, like cause the rendezvous scene at that time was still really going pretty strong, wasn't it? It really was. Um, I didn't know, you know, at, at thirteen or fourteen years old, I didn't really know how strong it was. Mm. Um, but but sure enough, uh, it was going. It was still. Uh, you know, sort of maybe at its peak, maybe going down. I don't know, but, uh, but it was, it was very, very popular. Yeah. yeah. So what, what happened between then and now 1988 and, and, and where you're at now, I guess not in like super detail, but you're still in it after all these years, uh, you know, how did you transition from the rendezvous scene and, and shooting cap locks into what you're doing now? 
It was very simple. Um, you know, the, the rendezvous scene, for, for lack of better better words, and I'll do respect to those guys that do that because it, it's a lot of fun. But uh, in, in the rendezvous scene, a lot of it is if it's made of metal or wood, it's good, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm making my kit and I'm making, you know, my moccasins and all that stuff. And I go out and camp for a weekend and I realize this stuff doesn't work. You know, there, there's... <laughs> It's falling off of me, or, or this just doesn't, uh, you know, this, I, I jogged a little bit. This this reached up and slapped me in the nose, and, and so there's no way that this could have been something that they were using on a regular basis. Right. So I started looking into uh, research of colonial America, and um, really online, <clears throat> uh, one of the forums, I got connected with, uh, a fellow by the name of Kurt Schmidt. Um, his his hobby name is Michael Archer. That's what he's known for on the on the forums. And I started asking him every question I could think of, and he answered every single one of them. And so what he did is he took me from uh, a a guy that was trying to tell a story of people who came before me to someone who could tell the story of people who came before me. Mm. Um, so it really took me out of the, the, uh, I, I'm careful how I say that. It's not really taking me out of anything. It's, it's putting me into something that's, that's ultra authentic and researched. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I think everybody understands that there, there is a difference between, you know, the, the kind of stuff that you're talking about and going to be talking about and the rendezvous scene. There's kind of just levels of, of depth in there as, as far as how far you want to go and wherever people end up landing in their own, you know, journey and experimentation and, and enjoyment of all of this is okay. You know, and I like to, you know, try to support all of it that I can, but there are differences between a lot of these communities all within muzzleloading that we experience. Um, that's, that's exactly right. And that, that's one of the things that he told me in his, one of his first emails back to me was, um, I, I've done rendezvous all the way to, uh, you know, to the, to the 18th century and I can help you get to wherever your mental picture sees you landed. Hmm. And that's the same thing that I tell people today that ask me for help is um, I, it doesn't bother me where you want to land. I can help you get there. Yeah. You know, if you don't want to be like me, that's fine. Um, you you want to do the rendezvous thing? I can help you do that. You know? Yeah. So you, you started to progress in your journey. Were you still using your grandfather's draw knife then? Or were you... Purchasing a lot of your equipment and your gear, or were you at the point where you're really starting to refine your own craftsmanship then? Um, at that point, um, he, he gave me a knife. It was a hand-forged knife, and, and I realized when I got that, that my gear, um, it was not where it needed to be. Hmm. You know, once I felt that, that first quality piece of equipment, I can remember holding that thing and thinking, okay, this is what everything's got to be like. That kind of set the and bar so it, for you. It, it really did. That one piece did. Um, and he, it, it just showed up in the mail one day. Hmm. And so uh, that set me on the course to change everything. I think the only thing that I have 
that I didn't replace was a striker. Hmm. And, and, and I say that to be funny, but that really is, um, you know, the, the standard is sort of what do we want to do? And my, my mindset is I want things that were made the same way that, that their equipment was made. Right. So that's why we buy, that's why somebody makes the hand-woven blankets. That's why somebody hand sews the shirts. Uh, that's why somebody brain tans the leather. Yeah. That's why somebody is hand forging. So if it's, you know, hand spun, uh, hand forged, hand dyed, um, you know, those kinds of things, that's what historical equipment, that's the filter that, that historical equipment is going through. And that's what I want my equipment to go through too. So to answer your question, uh, I was still using Grandpa's draw knife, and I still use it. That's great. I still have it, and, I, and I still have the piece of two by six that I almost whittled down the toothpick. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I mean, holding on. I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that kind of stuff can seem insignificant. But having the knife and even the piece of wood that you started playing with. You know, that's, that's a key moment, I would say, in your life and kind of in your story. And I love to hear that you've held on to that and still have that today. That's just and great. I, I think it is something that connects living historians and, and reenactors is we love, to, we love that story. Yeah. And, and essentially, that's what I'm doing. When I demonstrate at Martin's or, or Crockett or anywhere, um, I'm telling the story of people who came before me. They, they were, I dress like them. Um, I want to talk like them. I want to know what their attitude was, their mindset. Yeah. How they were thinking. Yes. So what, what, what then led you to start demonstrating at these events and start, you know, going from, you know, assembling and making your own gear to go out and do things? What led you then to kind of I guess go full circle and then start sharing that information and knowledge. That's a little bit of a long answer, but I'll shorten it by saying I've always been one who works with my hands. And so uh, I'll go back to Kurt Schmidt. Um, you know, I'm lacking a gun. I, I don't have a good gun. I've got, I've made leggings. I've purchased a hat. I've made a belt. I've, you know, I've hand sewn several shirts I've made moccasins the, the last thing and and really the gun should be the last thing that you sort of acquire in your for your persona was the gun I had a I had a gun on loan to me mm-hmm. but it really didn't fit my persona it fit the time period but it didn't fit me and so he he said um uh, Watch this video and see if you can do that. It was Herschel House putting together uh, a gun. And I watched it and I thought, I think I can do that. I've worked with my hands my whole life. And so he mailed me a gun kit. Oh, wow. Gave it to me. And <clears throat> I started putting it together. And I can do the, the inletting, things like that. That kind of thing came natural to me. But I... I didn't have the study of original guns in my hands to know what it needed to look like. Right. So 
in comes uh, a developing friendship with Mike Miller uh, from camps and different things like that. And mm-hmm. so uh, Mike offers to help. So I start driving to Mike's house about once a month on a Saturday, and he helps me put that gun together. So that gun, um, I had to give it to my daughter for her 16th birthday. I I asked her if she wanted my first gun or if she wanted me to build her one. Hmm. And uh, she said she wanted my first one. So she very much understands the the story of things also. That's wonderful. Uh, Yes. But that that gun, when I built that, uh, Mike kept on telling me, you know, you've got to build more guns. You're, you're good with your hands. You've got to build more guns. And I didn't want to because foolishly I thought, well, I don't want to take any customers away from Mike Miller. You know, he's got <laughs> <laughs> He's <laughs> putting is, food on the table. He's putting food on the table, but he's got a four-year waiting list. Yeah. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to take any meal out, out from underneath him. <laughs> uh, but, but at some point I, I, I came to the conclusion I need to build more guns. I need to be doing this. And so away I went. How many do you reckon that you've built now? I mean, that might be a silly question, but I'm just curious. I don't know. There, It hasn't been, um, you know, some great number. Mike has hundreds of guns under his belt. Yeah. I'm nowhere near that. But at some point I switched over to uh, to making tomahawks primarily. Mm. And, and now um, I have a few guns uh, that I'm finishing up that are on order, but pretty much I'm, I'm primarily tomahawks now. So, uh, the gun, uh, what I found with guns was, um, I'm happy with my finished product, but it takes me a while to get there. Right. And so I, I transitioned into, into forge work. Some smaller items maybe that, uh, are a little bit, a little bit different in how you go about them. Uh, right. They still take, um, you know, the same amount of research yeah. and, and the same, um, sort of, uh, uh, old ways of doing things. You know, there's a lot to a tomahawk, um, that we don't, not everyone understands just by looking at them, but, uh, in the same way as guns, um, you, you can build a tomahawk that looks great. It might look like a Viking thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it wouldn't fit for an 18th century. So you can put one together, but if you don't know what they look like, just like a gun, it's sort of hard to carry it at, at, at an 18th century event. Right. Well, let's let's jump into that a little bit, because we were talking at the CLA show this year, and you gave me a, a really quick but deep history lesson about tomahawks that I really, really enjoyed, and I've been thinking about ever since. Um, so... Tomahawks then and now, I mean, we kind of have an idea and they're like modern tomahawks that are made and things that maybe some of the listeners might have at home and have carried around. But what makes a tomahawk historically accurate for the the 18th century and the time periods that you specialize in research in? I'll start that answer by saying uh, the militia law. I'm going to bring up the militia law. Yeah. Uh, able-bodied males, 16 years old and up, and this is pre-Rev War and and well past it. Able-bodied males are required to have uh, a gun, pound of powder, you know, the lead to shoot, um, basically the weapons of war. 
because they're showing up through the militia muster once a month. Um, if you are, uh, if you're not there, you get fined. You know, if, you, if you're the, the militia captain inspects your gear, if it's, you know, if you've got a pile of rust as a gun, you <laughs> get fined. If you don't know how to use it, you get fined. You've got to be ready to go to war. And so the tomahawk is often mentioned as a weapon of war in these militia laws. Uh, sometimes it's switched out for a bayonet. Uh, sometimes they'll say a tomahawk or a sword. But in my historical opinion, every just about every able-bodied male owns a tomahawk. Because at some point in time, that militia law could change. It, they may say bayonet for six months. And, and it changes into a tomahawk again. Hmm. So <clears throat> having said that, this tomahawk is a completely different mindset than what we're used to. It's a weapon. It's not a, it's not a, a, a camp tool. It's not for throwing into a target hundreds and hundreds of times like I've done. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up, you know, thousands yeah. of times, I've thrown my my throwing tomahawk into a target to for competition and and just for fun, and it is it is much fun. But when I started to look at the original tomahawks that people that, that the the collectors were bringing, they had a very small eye. They were dainty, and it was very clear that they were made to use as weapons. You're not going to pound tent stakes in with these tomahawks because they're so light. Mm. They're so small compared to what we're used to seeing. And so we're back to mindset. Our mindset coming out of the rendezvous scene says, well, my tomahawk is to throw because that's what we do with them. Mm -hmm. we, we throw them at targets. We still do that. You know, we still do that at Martin station. We throw them into, into targets because it's, it's fun. It's something that the, that the people can try. And there's a few references of them doing that. But by and large, when I uh, started into my study of historical tomahawks, I'm seeing tomahawks that were not made to throw. And so the overall study of history, you know, you can't just study a tomahawk. Right. You've got to study what are they doing with it? What is the time? Um, are they going to war? Are they at peace? Um, is there turmoil on the frontier? All of that. All of that pointed me towards these are weapons. And so the 18th century tomahawk, by and large, especially <clears throat> um, after the first quarter of the 18th century, is pretty well small. It's dainty. And, and that, it's not meant to be thrown. Mm -hmm. It's meant to, to hold in your hand to use to protect yourself or on the offense. When you're saying tiny, uh, you know, kind of blade to, to butt, so to speak, what, what length are we talking about here? How heavy typically are you, are you seeing these? Uh, re you know, the, the originals and then your recreations, what size are those just as a, a frame of reference? Five to five and a half inches. Okay. And that's, that's almost across the board. 
with all of the styles, except for uh, except for uh, pipe tomahawks, which are also smaller in size um, in the early in the early years, but they've got a bowl to mm-hmm. uh, you know to account for. It, the, the question is, and the, the guys that I sell these to that are that that are special forces, or when they pick my tomahawk up, they know what it's for. Right. I can see the look in their eyes. You know, and they they tell me this thing is perfect. You know, it's because that's the way they were building them then. That's their intended purpose. Hmm. So we we kind of talked about the use for them. You know, does the availability of materials like metal specifically, do you think that has altered the size of them over time? You know, especially when we compare the 18th century to the, you know, early and mid 19th century, or is it a combination or is it, you know, just the use cases that changed over time that kind of adjusted those sizes into what we yeah, have today? Yeah, I think all of that is true. The 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 use of them uh, and the availability of materials. Okay. Um, so in the in the 19th century, especially later on towards the mid 19th century, the the tomahawks start to get bigger and bigger, and you see the uh, especially the pipe tomahawks are some of them are massive, and it's because um, that's more canvas for a gunsmith to make fancy and pretty. Uh, so he can put wire inlay, he can engrave it, he can put uh, brass, gold, silver inlay into the iron. You know, there's there's just so much more room to, to fancy things up hmm. if the haft is bigger and if the head is bigger. Right. Yeah. And so the availability of iron to do that, uh, it very much does, you know, that, that does come into play. Some of the originals that I have... Um, uh, it's a poor term that we have, but we, we call it like a Kentucky pattern, or some people say it's a sort of a Fort Meigs axe. That little that little axe, some of them can be, you know, three three and a half inches long. Man, there there isn't another use, you know, for that thing other than use as a weapon. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can't do anything with that other than, other than, you know, defense or offense. Right. Yep. And I tell people that, um, you know, they say, well, I'm going to use it to pound tent stakes. And I say, well, you have to remember in the 18th century, how many uh, percentage of people actually ever saw the underneath side of a tent? Yeah. You know, certainly the army did, but the army, if, if you're in the army, uh, you're not going to be using a tomahawk to, to pound your tent stakes in. You're going to use it, you know, an axe or, or or a maul or something like that. It's not going to be a little tomahawk. I also tell people they're for meat and bone, hmm. uh, whether that is in war or in butchering. You know, certainly if, if you're out and you kill an elk or a, or a deer or something like that, it can do what you need it to do because it's it's built to it's built to handle that. But if you want to chop down a six foot tree, six not six foot, six inch in diameter tree with a tomahawk that's three and a half inches long, um, you've got a lot of ambition and, and a lot of time on your hands in order to replace that half because it's not <laughs> it's gonna be a while before you get to it. Uh, 
you're going to need to figure out how to cut down some other trees to make a new haft for it. <laughs> right. And you're going to wish you had brought your axe along. And, and however, uh, you know, I've got a quote here that uh, this is from Daniel Tribune, and he helps settle uh, my, my area here in Kentucky, South Central Kentucky. Um, he's contemporary with Boone and Kenton. And uh, he's he's at uh, Logan Station here, so he's a you know he's a contemporary with the settle settling of Kentucky, and he says <clears throat> so. He and uh, two other guys are going back into Virginia. They're going back through the Gap, and it's winter time. They're leaving Kentucky. They're going back to to his home, and he says we each had a good. I'm gonna. I'm, this is a quote. We each had a good horse, rifle, and tomahawk. Some of the people in the fort said we would perish with the cold as we had no big axe to cut firewood at night. So he, as well as everybody in the fort, knows that they have a tomahawk. That's, and that's how, he's, that's how he spells it. He writes phonetically, tomahawk. They know that, that they each have a tomahawk but they think they're still going to die because they don't have an ax. That's telling us that everybody knows they're not chopping wood with their tomahawks. Right. It's a specialized tool used for what it's used for, and that's it. That's right. You're not going to put a bayonet on the end of your your musket and use it as a pry bar. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I can I can picture that happening and it hurts a little oh, bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it hurts me too. Hmm. I I just I'm really interested in that because we we have this kind of idea of the of the 18th century and in, in using whatever they had at hand as much as they had at you know as much as they could because of the limitations of of supplies and, and things for the time but the more we we research into this stuff and, and how things were made and how things were used they weren't they were you know especially here in, in the new world and, and on the fringes of things you you were kind of out on your own uh, a lot of the times there but they still had specialized tools and processes and use cases for these things like we have today for just about anything. I mean, you know, like my set of, of nice kitchen knives, they're just in the kitchen, you know, they're just for, for cutting meat or cutting vegetables. And even as limited as, as they were in their material culture in comparison to what we have today, they still had things that they reserved for those use cases. And I'm, I'm finding that more and more in, in my research over the last few years, as I'm trying to understand and, and really get deeper into this. And, uh, I really appreciate you sharing that with me because that, that was something that just really opened my eyes as just another great example of that. Uh, in the 18th century, you know, another thing that we uh, that we forget sometimes is, uh, you know, one of the most popular personas that people reenact is the long hunter. Yeah, let's talk and about I that. Have, I don't happen to be one, but I can play one because it's you know some of the same clothes. But the, the long hunters had axes. You know, they they had horses to carry all their gear. They're not walking into uh, the woods unless they have to, unless they're they're their horse is stolen or something, but they're not coming out with thousands of deer hides on their back. Right. So the, the, the use of horses in, 
in an 18th century setting and uh, an 18th century living historian, living history event is is pretty quiet because of obvious reasons. It's hard to, you know, it takes a lot of commitment to get horses to a, to a camp or, or on a trek or anything. So mm-hmm. um, that's their that's their suitcase. That's their, their wagon, so to speak, uh, to, to be able to get the right tool for the right job. Hmm. So I, I've talked to several other guests on the show about about the long hunters, um, and and you said here that you're. We've talked about your persona a little bit. What is your your living history persona, and and how did you arrive at that? That's something that I've talked to uh, some people, you know, that are interested in this. They want to know more about the research that goes into that, and how to decide where they want to end up with that. Could you share a little bit about that, uh, you know, from your perspective? Sure. I, I do talk a great deal at events and shows and everything about persona because people are, they, they just don't know what they want to be yet. Uh, my persona happens to be a, a spy or a scout. Um, and, and what I do is I range from fort to fort or station to fort, station to settlement, whatever. And I'm watching for Indian activity. Uh, so I range out um, and I'll report back that day. If nothing if nothing's going on, I'm back home every night. Okay. Uh, so um, if, if I do see, you know, uh, the enemy approaching or whatever, I go back to raise the alarm. Um, so it's it's a, or, uh, you know, similar to Simon Kenton, you, you have uh, a raid on the frontier. Um, people are kidnapped. Horses are stolen, whatever. Um, I'm going after them. Hmm. And I think it's a, uh, it's a part of our history that we forget about sometimes because in a settlement type of a situation, yes, we remember that it was dangerous, but we don't often know that there were, there were men that were employed just as watchmen. Right. Kind of the first responders of the, of the day. That's it. So that's my persona. The, the long hunter is out for months. Right. Well, I, I may be out for a few days, a week or so, and I'll, I'll carry my my kit to where that is that is the case. And I'm on foot. You know, when I'm when I'm leaving the fort every morning, I'm on foot. Now, is that the the kind of thing that that the person may not have been able to afford to keep a horse, or is that just a size and maneuverability choice? to be a little bit lighter and a little bit more nimble out in the woods. Nimble and quiet. Okay. He's leaving his, he probably has a horse, but he's leaving it behind hmm. um, so that he's not seen uh, because he's going to be, he's, you know, chances are a sediment is by a river somewhere. Okay. Um, and so he's looking for canoes. He's going up and down the river uh, looking for, uh, you know, any sign of, of beaching canoes or, or anything like that. Okay. So horseback is easier for for the man, but also much easier for other men to uh, to detect. 
This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. I've talked about Thor Bullets for over a year now, and uh, and I'd like to thank them again for their sponsorship. I have since, in this amount of time, went out and tested these bullets on my range. I have not gone hunting with them, but in my penetration testing and my accuracy testing with my CVA Acura LRV2, I have to say that the Thor Hammer bullets size to my bore for that Acura do a phenomenal job. I have sub one inch groups at 100 yards if I do what I'm doing. Uh, right with the rifle. Uh, really can't speak highly enough of these bullets. I, I think you should try them, not just because they're supporting the show, but because they are performing really well in the tests that I am doing. I also want to say real quick here that they have come out with their Thor muzzleloader practice bullets. These are a 50 caliber, 230 grain sabotaged lead bullet. It's a little bit of a cheaper option for you to get out and shoot your muzzleloader. And in general, get more familiar with your muzzleloader without using the Thor patented, you know, hunting premium bullets that uh, we've been talking about here for a while. So that's something for you to check out, something for you to consider. Uh, really can't thank Thor enough for their support of I Love Muzzleloading. This podcast is brought to you by Muzzleloader Magazine, the publication for traditional black powder shooters. Since 1974, Muzzleloader has been the leading magazine devoted to traditional black powder hunting and shooting. Each issue is jam-packed with articles on hunting, shooting, gunsmithing, do-it-yourself projects, living history, American history, book and product reviews, and much, much more. Muzzleloader Magazine is the best traditional muzzleloading magazine, bar none. I'd like to thank Jason at Muzzleloader Magazine for his continued support of I Love Muzzleloading and the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. I don't care what you're into. If you're interested in muzzleloading, this is the kind of magazine I think you need to check out. I've been a fan of Muzzleloader Magazine even before the sponsorship. Uh, I've always been impressed with what Jason has been able to put out with Muzzleloader Magazine, and it really means a lot for him uh, to be supporting I Love Muzzleloading and our efforts over here. Thank you, Muzzleloader Magazine, for your support. And what, what drew you to this kind of persona then? You know, I think um, in a time where everybody was wanting to be a long hunter, uh, I, I don't, I don't loathe the long hunter persona at all. Um, it, it's very, very much a, a neat persona. It's somebody that's on their own hook. You know, they're going out um, into the vast wilderness and, and trying to hunt as long as they can. Uh, but, but it seemed like in living history that it was very much overrepresented. Hmm. And so I wanted to do something that, that uh, sort of had, you know, maybe the same mindset, but I've got a family back at the fort that I'm going to, I'm going to, I hope to return to each night. So it, it's, it's really about, uh, and, and so, sure, if we're going out on an event in the woods and it's a, it's a long hunter event, I'm going to be a long hunter for that weekend. Right. But but my chosen persona as the the scout and the spy, um, you know I, I really like Simon Kenton, uh, and that's what he was. He was a scout. He would tell you how to get places. He would take you there. Uh, and and uh, this Daniel Tribu that I quoted earlier, um, he recruits him to go to, I believe it's Chillicothe, to steal back some horses that were stolen from them. Hmm. And uh, the next morning. Um, Daniel is is convinced by his brother not to go, and Simon winds up getting captured on that. Okay, on that, that, that sounded familiar. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so Daniel really he lucked out there. 
He did. He and uh, and then lived to, you know, write this book that that we have. That's so it's so great for uh, the settlement of Kentucky. Right. What What's the title of that for anybody listening that is interested? Westward in the Kentucky by Daniel Daniel Tribute. Uh, and I warn you for any uh, English students or or spelling. Uh, uh, enthusiast who writes phonetically. So when I said Tomerhawk, he does spell it T O M E R Hawk, and it's a wonderful way to be able to to tell how they're how they're speaking to. Right, because it was just it was it was very direct. It sounds like yes, he, he's writing it exactly how uh, he says Ohio. There's no there's no O at the end of Ohio. It's Ohio. O-H-I-A. Hmm. I like that. As somebody who has trouble spelling, I like that way of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And and really, that's what I've done is I've, I've altered my speech as much as I can remember. Just when I sit, when I talk about Ohio at some place like Martin Station, that's the term that I use. That's, that's how I say it. Okay. So what would you, what would, just kind of off the top of your head, what would you recommend folks who are, are wanting to find a persona or wanting to research their personas, you know, just kind of a, a, a guiding you know, tip or, you know, notion for them to consider as they, as they continue down that journey? I would, uh, I always uh, tell people at, especially at first, your first persona should be something that's plain, everyday and common. Um, if you research those things, you're going to find the most material on those things. But you're also going to find what most of the people are doing in the 18th century. Mm. So in other words, w- what are most people out on the frontier? They're farming. You know, that, that's what they're doing out there. They're, they're trying to raise crops. They've right. got land for free or, or cheap, and they're settling it, and they're going to start putting food in the ground, growing flax or, or something. So I tell people, you know, I, I just talked to a young, a young guy at Martin's here several months back, and, and I said, so what do you do? What does your family do? And he says, we're farmers. I said, well, then do that in the 18th century. If you can speak on farming and if, if he can research the, the techniques, some of the tools, um, you know, so, so he knows how, what it's like to till the ground, um, if he could even just look up period descriptions of period-looking plows, you know, an oxen or horse or mule or whatever to pull it, um, he doesn't have to be out tilling the ground at Martin Station in order for his persona to be a farmer. Right. So there's two things that you are. You're something that's playing every day in common, and you're in the militia because of before mentioned militia law. So everybody is in the militia. You've got to develop kit for that. And then you have to come up with something else. Uh, like say, um, you know, sometimes I'll grab an ax. I walk out of the gunsmith shop with an ax and somebody said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to chop wood. I'm a woodcutter this afternoon. Hmm. I'm not really going to chop wood at Martin station, but, that's a persona that I can keep, you know, pretty much the same thing on and grab an ax. And now I'm a woodcutter. 
because we need wood on the frontier. Oh yeah, you got to stay you warm. Have you got to have, have wood to cook with. You got to have wood to build things. I like that. I think a lot of times. Uh, I I catch myself doing it too because I'm you know I'm I'm young and you know we kind of gravitate towards some of the flashier things and uh, you know we can kind of lose sight of those everyday people and and what they were doing to survive and in in many cases those are the people we have to thank for us being here you know the being able to grow food and, and establish a homestead and you know and and like you said they're still involved in those you know defense and and militia type situations that might be considered a little more flashy um you know that kind of draw people in and you can kind of find a balance there which i think is really nice oh i agree the the militia especially on the frontier um everybody out there has the opportunity for war for battle right. they all know that it's it's uh, it can happen anytime um, and they can fight. So you don't have to um, you don't have to leave behind a warrior type mindset in order to be something that's playing every day in common. You know, uh, similar to a, a market hunter. You know, a, a market hunter um, or a, or a station hunter. They're going out and hunting for meat and bringing it back for the people that are in the settlement. So that's something that that you know a lot of people say they want to be a long hunter and i'll try to steer them into that you know you're in the militia you're here you're at the fort why, why don't you think about being a station hunter because that guy is literally bringing it back to the market to sell so that they can sell it to the other people who have industry and jobs and are not going out to hunt every day right it's kind of that uh it, it's more community driven rather than independence-driven in that sense. That's right. That's right. I like that. I think that's an interesting take on that. Persona-wise, there is so much that you can do. You know, if you if you see what's going on at a living history event, let's, let's just talk about Martins. There's the blacksmith. There's the gunsmith. Um, there's people in the cooking and, or baking in the, the oven. Uh, they're cooking. You know, there's the captain's quarters there. You can see all of this stuff. Well, let's look behind that for a minute. Where's the blacksmith get his charcoal? There needs to be a collier. Mm-hmm. That's this that's this this industry name. And this guy is making mounds of wood and lighting it on fire. And I mean it's covered in with mud, and he's producing charcoal for the blacksmiths. And you're probably putting it in in your fireplace, cooking with it and things like that too. But there's there's industry around every industry that we see that's out in the open. But we don't see the collier uh, very much at events. Right. They do demonstrate sometimes, but at some point there's somebody uh, producing the iron, you know? Yeah, all this stuff wasn't coming in on a on a big brown truck dropped off of the fort, you know, every every two days when it was needed, you know? Especially down in, uh, you know, Southern Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee. I mean, um, I heard a while back just about how they'd found some of the the furnaces connected to some of those uh, mines and things where they were processing, processing that iron and getting into ingots and and making some of that charcoal. And and that was that was in the mid 1800s by that point. Um, But they had just found and there was a book being published about that. And it was kind of just bringing some insight 
into that industry that we don't really think about when you consider, you know, small homesteads and, and forts and that kind of thing. You still have those industries that are kind of out there operating to to keep all that going, just like you're talking about the market hunters. And there's a there's a whole world out there we don't consider at times, which I, I think would be fun to see to see more representation of or, or research done about. Oh, uh, that's right. You know, Daniel Boone himself is is out making salt and he makes gunpowder both around the time of the Rev War. Hmm. Um, so, you know, even if you were just a salt maker, what have you got with you? You've got wood cutters because you got a bowl of salt. Now, so so you could you could be a salt producer, you could be a, a gunpowder producer. Um, and you don't have to actually produce the gunpowder, just know how it's done and, and, and have a display sitting there and, and there you go. You can demonstrate. Right. Do you enjoy, do you enjoy being at these events and, and kind of giving back to the community and, and the public in general? Uh, I love it. Yeah. Um, I love to tell the story. Um, I, I love the research, um, of, of what we do. You know, and, and what I've what I've learned from from early uh, living history is that I was trying to make everything that I had. And what I learned is if, if I'm doing this sort of research on tomahawks, um, I don't have time to do that sort of research on everything. So I'm going to I'm going to rely on somebody else to do the research on the shirt. And I'm going to buy the shirt from somebody that's well researched, and they and they make a good product. And I'm going to I'm going to specialize in tomahawks, you know, yeah. guns or whatever, whatever that is. Um, uh, we each had specialties in the 18th century, and and that's sort of what I've evolved to now. Is is uh, maybe I'll trade or something like that. But the sale of of a tomahawk can buy, you know, different things that are also equally as researched. Uh, for for somebody that that that's their passion. Yeah, my passion is not hand rolling blankets. I don't want to make one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna buy one though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I love uh, educating uh, the public. Um, the the smaller tomahawks has been sort of a, a an interesting endeavor uh, in the hobby because people are used to seeing the big things that that we throw. Mm-hmm. So it's been really fun to to uh, to bring out the little guys, and, and I, I bring one of the smallest ones that I have, originals, to events with me to show them. You know? So that's been fun. I love that. I, I think it's it's been interesting for me, I mean, seeing kind of tomahawks come back into – the mindset, I guess, in, in modern times, uh, talking with Casey Sampson a while back, he said one of the first things they sold out of, uh, when things started to get funky around COVID was tomahawks. He said, for some reason, everybody needed to have a tomahawk (laughs) in like June, 2020. And I, and I, I love that that's something that people now are able to connect with. And then you're there being able to share some more information about it. You know, they can really sink their teeth into what it was like and how they were made and the use cases for them. Uh, I think that's, 
a lot of times I think we can struggle to find something that people today can relate to in the 18th century. And I, I love that for you and your demonstrations, the tomahawk has been, been that thing that people can connect with and learn about. That's great. One little short thing to, to add to that. And that's, that's right. Is, is the connection of the, the forged steel bit. Mm. Um, we have better, we have better steel than what they had then. We can make an entire tomahawk out of steel not have to forge weld a bit in there and we can heat treat it and go on. Um, I don't feel connected. I don't, I'm not down on anybody else what they do, but, but I have to, to weld a carbon steel bit and a piece of mild steel or rod iron in order for me to feel connected with that process. Mm-hmm. Because that's what they're doing to every tomahawk, to every ax is they're welding that bit in. And so in order for me to stay connected, just, the same way back to my grandpa's draw now, right? Yeah. If I was wearing gloves, I wouldn't feel as connected. Um, and so I have to weld that steel bit into every tomahawk that I do. It's the connection. That's what it's about. Right. And I mean, that's something that they had to do because of the limitations of their materials. I mean, I, yeah. I've worked in a, a little bit in, in a blacksmith shop here on the farm, just kind of plinking around. And the idea of putting that bit in there is really daunting. But if I wanted to do something the way they did it, that was something they were doing day in and day out. And they had to learn that and, and get it right. Otherwise, they didn't have a viable product. And so I, I really see where, where you need to have that connection because that's how that is a hurdle that they needed to cross to make that happen in that period. Every blacksmith should have been able to weld. If you, if you couldn't weld back then, you probably maybe you were making nails all day or hooks or something like that. Right. And you, you, you stayed an apprentice. But that weld for me is amazing. I mean, I get goosebumps every time it happens. You know, I, I pull that thing out of the fire and smack it a few times, and you've just joined three pieces of metal together in the fire. Yeah. It's amazing. Hmm. And now I can think of firing up the welder here on the farm and, and what that, that difference is, you know, and how much work and how much skill it took at that time period compared to what we can do today. And Agreed. It's, I mean, I guess I, I said earlier that it, it's, it can be hard to find those correlations between then and now, but I, I think if we look and, and kind of think about it, they are, they are a little bit everywhere. You just have to think about them a little bit and it, it's fun to join those things together. I really like how you put that. It's out there and, and, and to, to continue to do that, um, that's, that's how I keep things interesting. Um, I, I'm always, when I weld that bit in, I'm telling that story again. Mm. But it, to me, that's in my mind. You can kind of place yourself in that shop, so to speak, going through that process. I can, I can be right there. I'm using a coal fire. I've got air blowing through it to make it hot. And if it doesn't get hot enough, it doesn't weld. And if it gets too hot, you've got a big glob of, of, uh, of iron and still sparking in the bottom of your fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be the right temperature, and and you you get to learn when it is. You pull it out and smack it, and it's joined together forever. So after all of this, if somebody listening is is interested in this kind of process and is interested in in getting into making some of these items, uh, you know, do you have any any go to tips or resources for them? Uh, you know, a book to get somebody started, I guess, it, kind of an easy way to go about it, uh, to kind of start their journey into this. 
Yeah, there's some there's some old blacksmithing books. Um, let's see, I'm gonna pull one down off the shelf here and give you the title for it. Uh, uh, Practical blacksmithing. There's four volumes of that. That's a pretty good um, a pretty good reference. Those are old old books. These things are copyright 1889. Hmm. Is is that one, um, or, or is that set? There's another one that I'm not seeing right in front of me right now, which is which is typical, but it's it's a it's a decent modern version of a of a good blacksmithing book. Uh, but but the other thing is um, Jim Wright's done a fantastic job of um, recording a lot of these old skills in American Pioneer video, and you can see um, a lot of those skills demonstrated in some of those early videos from. From American Pioneer Video, uh, I did find this other book. It's called "The Art of Blacksmithing" by Alex Beeler. Uh, it's it's sort of uh, whatever you would call the Bible on on modern blacksmithing. There's a lot on on YouTube and things like that, but the, the thing with YouTube is you never know. Um, right. You never know if that seems a is an expert or if it's their, that's the first one. Right. <laughs> they could just be a goober like me putting stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate that. I, I appreciate your willingness to share and, and, and kind of share some of those resources. Cause there's a lot of people out there wanting to try this or, or think they want to try this. And oftentimes finding a good place to start learning is the first hurdle they, they have issues crossing. Um, and I, I, I really appreciate you sharing those resources and, uh, getting them out there here. So maybe somebody listening can, can start down their own journey with this. I think that's important. I, I recommend to people oftentimes to look for a local blacksmithing guild. Hmm. Um, oftentimes there is, there's already an organization that is, uh, blacksmithing in the area. And so all that you need to do is uh, try to find one and, and go spend a day, spend a few days, you know, maybe every weekend something and figure out, is this something that I want to invest the time and money? Right. Unfortunately, it's not the kind of thing you can go down to the farm store and get in a box and get started a lot of times. That's, that's right. it is a, it's a big investment just before you can, you know, hear the first ding on the handle. Well, Simeon, kind of to to start to close us out here, where can people find you and, and your work if they'd like to see photos or if they'd like to purchase something from you or if they'd like to continue a conversation or start a conversation with you about some of this stuff? Uh, I've got a website, and it, you can you can find me at SimeonEngland.com. Um, that, that is, you know, the... the uh, the, the main place and, and on there you'll find an email that, that people can contact me uh, for. And I would, I would say if, if you do, if your listeners do email, please give me time because I do answer um, eventually, but it may not be, it may not be that week. Right. Uh, so. I, I don't want to, I don't want to just invite people to, to reach out and, and spam you with stuff. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's fine. It's, um, I, I love answering questions, but I, I always caution people. Yeah. Don't give up. If, you, if it's been a week or so, you know, hang in there. So. Got to put food on the table after all. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. 
Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. You can look me up with that, you know, with my name on, on there as well. Wonderful. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to talk about here? I, I usually try to, to bring these around about an hour just so I'm not taking up too much of, of your time as the guest here because I know you've got other things to do. Uh, but I want to make sure that you feel like we've we've covered the kind of stuff that you'd like to cover uh, with the conversation. You know, that, um, I appreciate that time. What, what I would like to say and encourage your listeners to do is to support your historic sites. Um, we we need our, uh, to support our sites and, and the history events that have happened in, our, in each of our local areas as much as we can right now. It's very important. There is a young uh, base, and I would say this base is maybe 14 years and younger. A lot of these kids that I'm seeing while I'm demonstrating are very interested in what we're doing. Um, and, and we need to be there uh, still doing it, and, and these sites still open uh, for when, you know, in another six or eight, ten years, when they can get back to a living history event dressed out. Um, uh, they decide, you know, if they're all closed down and there's weeds growing up, it's not going to be any good for them. They'll have to start uh, from before where we started. Right. So please support your local, um, you know, your local forts. And if you don't have one local, find a place like, uh, I, I don't want to mention names, but, but there are plenty, because I don't want to leave any out. Right, right. There are plenty of historical state uh, sites and, and sometimes not uh you know, some of them are, are not state sites that that rely on uh, donations and, and friends group and things like that. So go to the events, whether there's a battle or not, hmm. and support the sites. Yeah, a lot of times those those yearly events are the the main fundraising effort for these historic sites to make sure that they can keep continuing the research and preserving the history of, of your local area a lot of the times. That's right. We, we are... Uh, you're never very far away from seeing a, a, a historical site close their doors to where nobody can go camp there again until a regime changes. And, and so here's something uh, like Martin Station, for example. Uh, the station is built. It's there. You can go enjoy it. But there is constant upkeep and maintenance that's required in those buildings. So it's a it's a... You know, it's a continual thing. This isn't just, yeah, we've got the fort built where we can lay back and relax, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A wood structure doesn't uh, stay up very long without some upkeep. <laughs> That's right. It never was meant to. And, and so in five or six years, or maybe less, you're going to need a new roof. Yeah. Well, I think that's a that's well, a great thing to, to close on, man. I think that's that was wonderful. Well, good. I, I, I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope your, your listeners enjoy it, too. And uh uh, I hope that we we can, as a group, learn to preserve history and learn to tell the stories of, of those who have come before us. Mm. I hope so, too. I think, at least I hope that, that we're starting to see, you know, a new wave of those, like you said, 14-year-olds kind of coming back to it. Uh, you know, now that they're a little older. I'm I'm one of those, you know, kind of right now, I guess I'm a little bit older than, you know, uh, then coming back in, but it's still um, something I hope to see continue. And I, I really appreciate you being so open and, and, and talking about this stuff. I really do appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. 
I'd like to say once more, thank you to Simeon for taking the time out of his day and, and time away from the forge here to talk with us and share some of his information uh, with all of you at home. I hope this gives you a fun or, or interesting starting off point or continuation point as you go through your own living history or, or muzzleloading journey. Even if you're not interested in going as far as, as Simeon and, and I are talking about in this episode, maybe it gives you a little bit of a different perspective to, to mull over as you're as you're carrying your muzzleloader especially this fall in the woods with the hunting seasons coming up you know consider some of that history that you're connecting with you know muzzleloaders are a great way to get out for a couple extra weeks in the fall but uh, as many of us enjoy this connection to history i hope that if you're out there and you're just getting started with this i hope that you can also find and enjoy that connection with history simeon mentioned a lot of great resources i'm going to have all of those listed or linked in the description that goes with this episode you can also find these at ilovemuzzleloading.com in the blog post that goes with this episode i want to make it as easy as i can uh, for you to find these resources and i understand that it's hard to write them down sometimes as you're listening i get told that a lot of people listen to the show while they're driving and i don't want you uh, trying to write things down as you're driving you can find all this stuff in the description of the episode and at ilovemuzzleloading.com as we head through fall here and into winter, uh, we have quite a few episodes of the podcast queued up. I'm trying to get through and, and make sure we continue with two every month. I've received quite a few requests uh, to do more. Uh, it's something I'm, I'm working towards. Uh, I'm going to be experimenting with a couple solo episodes just about topics uh, that are just with me. So it might be something you see here in the next few weeks or months uh, as we work through scheduling with uh, other living historians and muzzleloading enthusiasts. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit different. Difficult to, to get people on uh, just as schedules conflict. So we're, we're trying to find a way to, to keep up with the output that, uh, that so many of you have been appreciating. I can't thank you enough for all the kind words, uh, but we're also trying to kind of hear some of the comments about wanting a few more here and there and, and trying to process that as much as we can. Uh, as you heard there, my daughter is uh, just about six months. You probably heard her in the back of the episode a little bit. Um, so it's been a it's been a balancing act being a new dad here and, and keeping up with the show. But I really appreciate all the kind words and, and uh, you know, all the well wishes for for baby and mom here. Uh, everything's going really well. Uh, she's growing like a weed. So it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, we've got her a toy rifle now and uh, a little hunting pouch. So I'm excited to get her out in the woods, but I think it's going to be a little bit, little bit longer <laughs> before that happens. As always, if there's a, a guest that you'd like me to talk about or a topic that you'd like covered on the show that we haven't talked about before, uh, please reach out and let me know that that's the kind of thing you want to hear about. If you have mentioned something and we haven't talked about it uh, yet, you feel free to reach out and let me know again. You know, keep reminding me about a topic that you want to hear about or somebody you want to hear from. I'm more than happy and uh, to keep reaching out and, and trying to get those topics in the queue. Sometimes things just kind of fall by the wayside just as so many emails and things come in. So if it's been a little bit or I haven't gotten back to you, feel free to just bump me, you know, shoot me another email and said, hey, you know, just pushing this back up to the top of your inbox. Uh, you know, I'm really sorry I can't get to everybody super quickly, but um, we're trying to get to everybody as much as we can and, and include a wide variety of topics as much as we can. A lot of times the episodes uh, kind of just go through my interest at the time and the, and the people I'm talking to and the discussions that, that we're having. Uh, but I want to make sure that we're discussing things that are pertinent and interesting to you, the listeners at home. So that's all I have for you this week. I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. I'd like to thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.
In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com. Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com.